Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that you've given to us the words of life. We think, Lord, of all the alternate paths, all of our options that are open to us, the other roads and philosophies that we could follow, the other systems of belief and religion. And we echo the same words that your disciples echoed when you asked them, will you also go? And they said, Lord, you alone have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? And because you do reveal yourself in this book, these 66 books in the document we call the Bible, you reveal yourself through it. We, as your children, want to learn what you have to say, how you spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, and what you have to say today in Christ. And so, Father, I pray that we would become students of the Word of God, that we might become sons and daughters of the living God by applying those things and living in obedience. I pray, Father, that you would give us a renewed hunger for the things of God, that we would remember back to the first time when we enjoyed fellowship with you as new Christians and just the hunger that we had. And, Father, if we've lapsed into any apathy, I pray, Lord, that you would shake us from that and by your love draw us back to that place of intimate relationship and fellowship with you, that we might enjoy you even as you enjoy fellowship with us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Moses was an extraordinary kind of a leader. Extraordinary not only in what he had gone through in terms of studying in Egypt. But in terms of the love that he had for his people, here's a guy who was raised in Egypt. He had all of the power at his disposal. Being a part of the royal court in Egypt. Yet when he found out that he was a Hebrew, the Bible says he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season. He made that choice. He chose to give up his wealth, his position, his power, to be united with a suffering, afflicted group of people. That's love. He gave up quite a bit. He sacrificed quite a bit to be with these people, to become their leader, their human deliverer. He chose to suffer affliction. And his love continued because these people were creeps. They were obstinate. They rebelled against God. They rebelled against Moses' leadership. Time after time after time, they just complained incessantly. And yet Moses stuck it out. There were times, I think, where he was pretty angry at them. In fact, there was the time where he started beating the rock toward the end of the wilderness journey. But for the most part, Moses did a pretty good job of putting up with these guys for 40 years. He loved them. They would come to Moses and say, Who made you in charge? We don't like the way you're leading things. We want to be in charge. And of course, God vindicated him. The ground opened up and swallowed the dissenters. God covered him. But nonetheless, he was still there serving and loving these people. In chapter 33 and 34, we get some incredible insight into the kind of prayer life that Moses had, his relationship with God and his love for those people, how he prayed for them, how they were close to his heart. You know, your prayer life is a window to your heart. It reflects what you really are inside, the things that you say to God. Jesus said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And a person will give himself away in his relationship with God when he prays. You can see into his heart. If he's oriented toward himself, if he's a selfish individual, it will be reflected in his prayers. Lord, I need. Lord, I want. Lord, when are you going to do for me what you did for them? If a person is God-centered, his prayers are for the name and the glory and the reputation of God. He's concerned about the kingdom of God. He's seeking first the kingdom of God. Moses 
prays for these people because they are heavy on his heart. He doesn't want God to wipe them out. He doesn't want God to destroy them. Even though God said, look, Moses, stand back. I'll just smoke these people. I'll just destroy them and I'll start all over again with you. I'll fulfill my promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through you. I don't need them. And Moses is consistently standing in the gap. What a difference in Moses' prayer life from the very beginning when God called him. Remember how he started talking to God at the beginning? When God said, Moses, I have called you. I'm going to use you to deliver these people. Uh, well, God, uh, what am I going to say to him? And then, oh, Lord, um, who am I going to say sent me? What's my ID? Then he said, Lord, uh, I can't talk. I have a speech impediment. I haven't gone through and finished my speech therapy. I can't do this. Finally, he said, no, God, send somebody else. I don't want to do it. Now it's a different story. Oh, those 40 years. Though it hasn't been 40 years yet. He'd been out in the wilderness 40 years being broken by God. And when he was 80 years old and moved with the children of Israel, there was a further time of humbling in his life. And now instead of saying, Lord, I can't do it. Lord, send somebody else. Lord, crush these people. It's, oh Lord, please send your presence with us. And so we get that in chapter 33, where then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. Now before we go on and we see the prayer of Moses, examine for just a moment your own life. If you think back to the years before, some 40 years when God first called him and he said he wasn't ready and he gave excuses to the time where he's entering into a full expression of the love for his people in his prayer life. And if Moses were to stop and look back, he'd say, boy, I've changed. Look at me back there. And look at me today. Boy, I've changed. We ought also to be able to see demonstrations of the changes of God in our life. Because God lives in us. Because we've accepted Jesus Christ. He's the Lord of our lives. Our life should be constantly in flux. Always changing. Now God never changes. We should always be changing. Moving from glory to glory. Growth pattern to growth pattern. Level to level. And you look back on your life, you should be able to see those milestones, those mile markers. Well, I've come a long way. You're not perfect, definitely. We still have hang-ups. And I can see now more hang-ups, more filth in my life today than I could when I first started. And I think that's part of the maturing process. Paul, after 30 years, said, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the bondage of this death? The closer a person gets to the Lord, I think the more sin that person sees. When we're first Christians, we notice those real big sins. Right? Yeah, I am. I guess I shouldn't fornicate anymore. I guess I shouldn't take drugs anymore or get drunk. Yeah, I guess that's something God doesn't want me to do anymore. You say, well, that's pretty obvious. Yeah, but for a brand new believer, that's like a big kind of a revelation. But the more you walk with the Lord, even those thought patterns that you have now, you catch yourself, you go, I shouldn't have thought that. That's wrong. That's sinful. That's not honoring God. Where when you first started out as a Christian, ah, who cares? I mean, you know, I, at least I stopped getting drunk. But the closer and the longer you walk with the Lord, that sanctification process goes into the deep recesses of your life, into the thought patterns of your life, and you see those changes in your actions. But also in your prayer life. When I first learned how to pray, I remember I, was, I remember my parents teaching me the now I lay me down to sleep prayer. It was a way for a kid to re remember something. And so they taught me, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. I actually prayed it. That was my evening devotions. Now hopefully I have progressed a little bit since that time. You should worry if you heard me at night praying that prayer. 
You say, boy, I'd hope he'd grow a little bit more than that. A couple weeks back, my assistant pastor, Chip Lusco, brought his beautiful little baby girl, Heidi, into the office. And he was so excited. He goes, she spoke her first words. I said, Chip, what were her first words? He said, they were, Daddy. He was so proud. I said, are you sure he said Daddy? Or she said Daddy? Maybe we should call Deb and see if that's really her first word. No, it's her first word. She said Daddy. He was so excited. He should be excited. It's precious to hear a little infant say your name or her first words. Daddy. Dada. And usually it's not so defined as something like, but hey, good enough. That's good enough. Dada. That's great. I'll take that. It's exciting. But when Heidi grows to be 25 years of age, and she came to Chip's door, knocked on it, home from college on a weekend, and he opened the door and she said, Dada. His countenance would drop. He would say, My heart is broken. What a tragedy. She hasn't progressed. We had hoped for higher and better things. There's no progression in her communication. So it is in our walk with the Lord. Our prayer life becomes more focused, more God-centered, more intercessory, more specific. At first we might begin by praying, Oh God, just bless everybody in the world. Amen. Lord, bless China. Of course, God wants you to be more specific. How do you want Him to bless China? How about, Lord, there are missionaries in the northern province that's called whatever you find out its name is. And this is what they are doing. And I pray specifically that you would make sure they get their financial support. Fill them with boldness. Enable them to clearly present the gospel. And may they expand the borders of their ministry, becoming fruitful in that province. May they see fruit this month. Be very specific. Now, your prayer life progresses. You learn that as you communicate with God. When I was growing up, I'd communicate with my parents at different levels, depending on what age I was. I remember when I was about Nathan's age, and I would talk to my mom and dad the same way Nathan talks to us. When we go to a store, hey, mom, can I have that? Hey, dad, would you buy me that? Hey, dad, how come my neighbor has that and I don't have it? Would you do that for me? Now, Later on in life, I don't, well, today I don't call up my dad. He's almost 80. And say, now, Dad, I saw some in the store the other day. Would you buy that for me? How come my friend is that? Now you didn't get it for me. He'd say, what a brat. My communication to him is different. I'm concerned about him. I'm concerned about he and my mom. How are they getting along? How do you feel? What can I do for you? Let me be your servant for a while. You've raised me. And so we start in our relationship with God very much like that. Oh, God, please, I need this. I want that. But hopefully you grow more and more, and your heart is for other people and also for the Lord and his glory. Moses is demonstrating this in these chapters. To your descendants, the Lord says, I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Termite. No, I'm sorry, the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard these grave tidings, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I bet he didn't like writing that sermon. I thought, oh, Lord, I don't want to give that message. They already don't like me. Lord, it's going to be tough to announce my Sunday morning message. My uh, title this morning is, You Are a Stiff-Necked People. Point number one, you're a stiff-necked people. Point number two, you're a stiff-necked people. Point number three, you're a stiff-necked people. In conclusion, you're stiff-necked. That's what God wanted me to tell you. I don't think he was looking forward to that one. But say to them, you're a stiff-necked people. I could come into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now therefore take off your ornaments 
that I may know what to do to you. God is holy, absolutely separated from sinners, contrary to the New Age teaching that believes in a monistic view of the world, saying that God is the same as his creation. God is one with his creation. We're all a part of God. We're all a part of the same divine essence. No, we're not. We're very different from God. God is absolutely pure, totally holy, separate from sinners. That's why that bridge of sin between us and God needs to be bridged. And it has through a Savior. Now God said, because I'm holy, because you have sinned, You've made this golden calf. You've committed the most heinous form of idolatry. You've held up an image that I said you shall not make. And you've said, this is the God which brought you out of Egypt. Let's worship him. If I were to travel with you now because of your sin and your idolatry, you couldn't handle it. You'd be dead. You'd think, what a horrible God of wrath. Think again, it's a God of mercy. God doesn't want to consume them. That's why God is saying, I'll send my angel. I won't even go with you lest I consume you in the way. Now, what I find interesting in this little section is how God is viewing his people very differently than how God views his people back in chapter 3. In chapter 3, God's heart is very softened. He says, Moses, I have heard the groanings of my people in Egypt. I have seen their affliction and all of the hard labor which, which, with which they labor with their taskmasters in Egypt. And I see them. They're afflicted. They're oppressed. I'm going to deliver them. Now God looks and sees them as a stiff-necked group of people. Same people. Same God. But a different way of dealing with them. Why? Their hearts. God hadn't changed. They've changed. And God deals with us depending on how we deal with him. If your heart is hardened, God will deal differently than if your heart is open. I don't want to follow God. I'm just going to do my own thing. I'll tell you what. God loves you so much, he won't let you go. He'll chase you. He might shove you into a corner a little bit, rough you up. Oh, well, that's not a God of love. Oh, it sure is. God will do whatever it takes to let you love him, for you to surrender to him. And if he has to chase you around and pursue you to convince you that life without him is miserable, he'll do it. Because he wants you with him in heaven forever. God is a God of love, and he'll deal with you depending on how you deal with him. If you draw near to him, he'll draw near to you, the Bible says. If your heart is heart, God can match wits with you. I love that about God. I really love that about God. Even Jonah, when he said, No, I'm not going to obey you, Lord. I'm going to go to Tarshish, not Nineveh. I don't want to preach to those creeps. They have destroyed our people. They have oppressed our people. I'm going to go take a princess cruise over to Tarshish. God said, All right, Jonah. Buy that ticket. Get into that boat. But I'm not letting you go, buddy. I'll chase you. I have ways of showing you that the best place for you is right in my hand so that I can use you and that you can receive my love. So I'll send a storm and I'll send a great fish and he'll swallow you up. And when you're really down in the mouth, <laughs> you'll cry out to me and you'll beg me to forgive you. And I will. Doesn't have to be that way, Jonah. You could right now say, okay, Lord. And it'll be wonderful, but it might take a little pain to get to the point where it will be wonderful. It's up to you. Which way do you want it? God says they're afflicted, they're oppressed, and he deals in grace. But now because they're stiff-necked, they must be humbled. God says, here's how I'll do it. I don't want to destroy them, so I'm going to send an angel. I'm not going to go with you. I'm not going to take this trip in the same way that I started out. see what happens. When the people heard these grave tidings, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. Oh, that's a good sign. This is hopeful. They're becoming remorseful, but don't get your hopes up too high. 
Just because somebody weeps and mourns and laments doesn't necessarily mean that they've repented. I know a lot of people that are in prison who mourn and lament. They're sorry that they got caught. They really haven't changed their heart. It's one thing to weep, and it's another thing to weep unto repentance. Paul wrote to the Corinthians a very harsh letter. He rebuked them because they allowed somebody in their fellowship who was sexually immoral, who was committing incense, incense, incest. Well, they would light incense, and then they, they committed incest. And so Paul rebukes them. Heavy-handed rebuke. He said, you should put them out of your fellowship. You should actually remove them from allowing them to come to any of your fellowship meetings. You should mourn. You say you're tolerant. You've used it as a license to sin. Disfellowship them, he said. Don't even eat with them. He wrote a second letter and he said, all right, that person who you've, you've kicked out of the fellowship has now come to a place where he wants back in, he's seen his evil deed and he's repented. So don't let him be consumed by his sorrow. Receive such a one back. He said, I wrote you that letter and it made you sorry and I don't apologize for that. He said, I didn't want to just make you sorry, but I wanted that sorrow to lead you to repentance. And so this is the first step. They're mourning. They see that what they've done is wrong. It's offended God. More than that, they're afraid of what might happen, and so they mourn. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. When you recognize you are apart from God, you're not his friend, you're his, you are at enmity with God, and you say, ooh, I'm in that condition, it's a poverty condition. Spiritually, I'm bankrupt. And when you come and you mourn, you will be comforted. That's repentance, where you mourn and you change your heart. Well, this is the first step, nonetheless. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You're a stiff-necked people. So he gave the sermon. God said he could come in and consume them. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. The ornaments were their bracelets, their earrings that were often used when an idol was made. The Egyptians used them in their worship. They are reverting back to the Egyptian form of worship. They stripped themselves as a sign of humility before the Lord on Mount Horeb or on Mount Sinai. Then it says in verse 7, and verse 7 begins one of the greatest days in Moses' life. He enters in to a form of fellowship with God that is very, very different from the past. Where God speaks to him, it says, face to face as a man would speak to his friend. You know, one of the most amazing things to me is, is that I can come and talk to the guy who created every other guy and gal, the creator of the heaven and the earth, God himself, I can come and have a conversation with him and he'll listen to me. He really listens. And what's even more amazing is I don't have to make an appointment. We can all be talking at the same time to him and he can individually hear and be concerned about all those things that concern us. God never has to say, I can't see you today. My schedule is booked. God always has time for me. And God is always trying to draw me into that place of intimate fellowship and worship with Him. Moses found that beautiful day in these next few verses. Moses took his tent, pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. Now, this is not the tabernacle that the pattern had been given to Moses, the tabernacle consisting of the court, the labor, the altar, and so forth. This is not that tabernacle. This is probably Moses' own tent. 
The tabernacle instructions had been given, but it is not even made yet until future chapters. It hasn't been constructed. This is probably Moses' own tent, and it's pitched not at the center of the encampments of Israel, like the tabernacle proper will be. This is his tent that he pitched outside of the camp of Israel. Because the people had sinned, by their idolatry, they're pushing God out of their midst. Moses, to meet with God, goes outside the camp in his own tent. Probably the same tent that he used when, in Exodus chapter 18, he would stand before the people day and night and counsel them all day long, line after line, person after person, all of the little needs, all of the problems. They come to his tent. Now Moses pitches it outside the camp. And Moses went out to the tabernacle. All the people got up. Each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door and all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. Important lesson. Sin breaks fellowship with God. Because they defiled the camp by allowing a golden calf to be built. They pushed God out from their midst. He's no longer dwelling in the midst of them lest they be consumed. They're sinful, he's holy. The tabernacle hasn't been constructed, animal sacrifices have not been instituted, therefore if Moses is going to talk to God, it has to be outside the camp. They have defiled the camp by their sin. Moses goes outside of the people to fellowship with God, outside from the, of their midst. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus writes to the church of Ephesus. He commends them, and then he writes a footnote of condemnation. He says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do your first works, or else... Ooh, ooh. Whenever God says, or else, to you, you better listen. Or else I will remove the lampstand, Jesus said, from out of its place. Jesus walked in the midst of the seven golden lampstands in Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 2. He walked in the midst of his churches. The lampstand represented the presence of God in the midst of his churches. I'll remove the lampstand from out of its place. Jesus is saying to the church of Ephesus, I cannot stand to be in the midst of a church that has lost its love for me that has left its first love. You can push God out of your life. They push God out of the camp. Moses goes outside the camp to meet with God. And actually, this is an act of grace. You know, God could have said, I've had it. I'm not going to even allow you, Moses, to fellowship with me outside the camp. I'm not going to make any kind of arrangement for the atonement of these people's sins. I've had it. But no. Moses removes the tent, goes outside. He's going to intercede. He's going to get to know God better. And God's going to say, my presence will go with you. Before God judges, God always provides a way for a person to change and repent. That's the grace of God. Again, Jonah was told to go to Nineveh with one message. You're going to be destroyed. Your number is up and your toast in a few days. That was his message. Yet the people in sackcloth and ashes repented and so God stayed his judgment. It was really an ultimatum, not a sentence yet. And God always gives a person a chance. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, where sin has abounded, grace does much more abound. Another translation, when sin reaches its high watermark, grace completely floods over. You can never erect a barrier of sin that the grace of God cannot breach if your heart is still open in any capacity. Adam sinned against God. God pursued him. Adam, where are you? God said. Jonah ran from God. God chased him. The people of Israel sinned here. God isn't finished with them yet. That's the love of God. 
Some of you have failed the Lord, and you are fed up with all of the promises that you have made to the Lord and broken. And you're just kind of numb from it. I've tried. I failed. There's that one area of my life that I keep trying to get victory over, and I can't. I keep telling the Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sure he's sick of hearing me say it. I'm sure he'll never forgive me for it. Think again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from some unrighteousness. Boy, did I misquote that, didn't I? From all unrighteousness. Could we with ink the oceans fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God would drain the oceans dry? Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. You can't exhaust the love of God. Where sin abounds, grace overflows. In every turn, when the children of Israel have blown it, the Lord just comes through. It's awesome. The people saw the pillar standing in the tabernacle door. All the people rose and worshipped. Each man, notice, in his tent door. Moses, or the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Now, how do you figure this with what it says in the New Testament? In the New Testament, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word is with God, the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him there was nothing made that was made. In Him was light, and the light was the life of men. The light shined in darkness, the darkness comprehended it not. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bore witness of him, saying, This is the one of whom I said, The one who comes after me is preferred before me because he was before me, and of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace. For the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father has declared him. That's quite a statement. Here's Jesus, the ultimate representative of God. He created the heavens and the earth. No man has ever seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son in the bosom of the Father has shown him forth or revealed him. Phanerao is the word, to reveal or disclose. Yet it says here that the Lord spoke to Moses face to face. It could literally be translated mouth to mouth. And what the rabbis think this means, translated, is that God did not speak through symbols or through enigmatic kind of ways, but very plainly, so that in his mind the message of God was clear, just like looking into a mirror and seeing a clear image. God spoke clearly to him. And God didn't speak that clearly to anybody else. God was speaking to Moses and through Moses as a representative. But I love that phrase, as a friend. As a man would speak to his friend in plain conversation. You know how it is when two friends get together and talk? Do they write things down and read it to each other? Dear friend, you look nice. I really like you. You are fun to be with. Now that's how you might give a speech in front of a group that you're not familiar with or you have to really be geared of what you're going to say. You don't do that to a friend. The friend, you hang out. You exchange thoughts. You talk about what interests you. That's how I love talking to the Lord. I remember when I was a young Christian and I first came across this scripture and a few others like it. I began to see prayer very different from how I had seen prayer for a long time. God was always austere, separated from me when I was growing up. I love the story about the woman from the South, very down-to-earth gal. She was with a Puritan who was praying. 
And the Puritan said, Oh, thou terrible, beneficent, magnificent creator, which adornest the world. And he went on and on with all these expletives. And she said, Would you just be quiet, call him father, and ask him something? Just get down to business with God. As a man speaks to his friend, I'm not saying you should treat God despitefully. You should certainly treat God with respect. But speak to God as a friend. Is that your conversation with God? Are you on friendly terms with Him? You know the best way that I can pray? I pray in a number of ways. The best way for me to pray is to take a walk around the block or up through the neighborhoods or out through the woods on a little bit of trail. Well, there's no really no woods unless I drive to them, but out in the desert. Just to walk. If I sit at a desk or I sit in a chair, oftentimes I will snooze. It's just a comfortable position. It's better for me to just walk and just start whatever's on my heart, whatever the Lord brings to my mind. Just, hey, Lord, here it is, as a man speaks to his friend. Sometimes people have emergency room prayer lives. It's only when they're in a crisis. So bring out the paddle, CPR, Coom, hit him, Coom, hit him. He's about dead. <laughs> Revive him. There's people who pray like that. Oh, God, God. And God's saying, man, I haven't heard from you in months. But God, I'm really in a fix. Yeah, I know. I sent you that fix. Just wanted to hear from you. That's why the lesson comes to mind that we shared today. Pray without ceasing. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know with whom you will send with me. Now, he's kind of getting edgy here. He's being very honest and very frank. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you. That I might find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, I will give you rest and then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. The first thing he asked for is guidance. He says, Show me now your way. Show me now your way. Give me guidance. Give me direction, Lord. I can't know the way I'm to go unless you reveal it to me. The Bible tells us in James, you have not because you ask not. We should be asking God for direction constantly. Lord, I trust you in this. What do you want me to do in this? Give me your wisdom. Give me your direction. Show me your way. You have not because you ask not. Well, I don't know which way to go. Have you asked him? I meet people constantly who tell me their woes, and I will say, have you really taken this before the Lord? Well, no, I want to take it to you. That's why I came to you. <laughs> well, i got to send you back to God. Ask Him direction. You have not because you ask not. But here's the problem. Sometimes we ask God for direction, but what we really want Him to do is sanction our way. Lord, tell me that my way is all right. Tell me that my decision is good. Just, I'll pray about it. Just don't answer me, all right? Just pat me on the back and say that my way is your way. And so James says, you have not because you ask not. You ask and you receive not because you ask amiss. That you might consume it on your own lust. And so Jesus taught us to pray this way. Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Not my will be done in heaven as it is on earth. Just being totally open to the way of God. Lord, show me your way. And then second request, that I may know you. And I, it's be very easy to camp on that phrase the rest of this night. How many times have you prayed, Lord, I want to know you? Now, Christians, we pray, Lord, I want to serve you. That's my prayer. I want to serve you. Show me how I can make an impact. First prayer ought to be, I want to know you. 
Paul prayed in Philippians that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable even to his death. He prayed that after walking with the Lord about 33 years. I want to know you still. Now, the word in Hebrew to know means to know intimately. There's levels of knowing people. When you first meet a person, you can't say, yeah, I really know this person very well. He's a close friend. You just met the person. You can't say that. When I first met my wife, I'll never forget it. She had red jeans on. She was barefoot. She came up and put her hand out and said, hi, I'm Lenya. And she shook her hand, and I thought, I like that. I just liked the way she presented herself. And as we all do, we start forming an image of what that person is like. I thought, well, that's interesting. She's aggressive in that sense. She's not sitting back in the corner. She's coming up and introducing herself to people. She's barefoot, so she's not inhibited. She's free. And so I surmise that she's probably a Newport Beach brat. Probably lives down at the beach in some big mansion with her folks, and, and she's probably, you know, and, and I had this little image of what she was like. Then I got to know her, and it wasn't like that at all. Very sweet disposition. And, uh, but you form an image at first. I didn't really know her. As I dated her, I got to know her better. I know her a lot better now. I know her very well now. I know her very intimately now. There are many people who are acquainted with God, but they can't really say, you know, I know him. I know what God likes. I know the things that God does. I know the things God wants me to do. I'm familiar with him. I know him personally. I talked with him today. This is what he revealed to me. That's a different kind of a relationship, one of intimacy. And that's what he's praying for. Show me your way. Secondly, that I might know you. And that I might find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. Lord, they're not mine. I'm just here because you told me to do it. I'm on assignment, but they belong to you. I don't want them. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Oh, awesome. Now listen to this. And he said, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are on the face of the earth. You know what I like about Moses? He was scared to go somewhere without God. He was scared to go somewhere without God. Lord, let me just tell you this. If you don't go with us, I'm staying right here. It's better to hang outside in this tent, outside the camp, out here, out in the middle of the desert, than to go somewhere where you're not. Do you have that same attitude? You ought to be scared to go anywhere without God. You ought to be scared to write appointments in your calendar and go out the front door unless you've committed your day to God. It's His day. You can go out there, but guaranteed, some point in time in that day you'll go, man, this has been a tough, horrible day. God's going, back here. Lord, go with me. If you don't go with me, I don't want to go. Give God your best. God's given you his best. God says he'll go with you. Invite him to go with you. Ask him to reveal himself every day in his word. Get direction from him. Let him go before you. Give him your best. The best hours of your day, your best time. I heard of a little girl... Her father gave her $2. She was so jazzed. But she said, Honey, $1 you're to put in the offering plate Sunday. That's for church. That's you give to the Lord. The other dollar you can spend on whatever you want. Fair enough, Dad. She was going down the street. A wind caught one of those dollars, went down the sewer. She came home with a sad face. Dad said, What happened? She said, A very, very sad thing happened. God's dollar went down the sewer. God, sorry, you lost your buck. This one's for me. I'm not letting go of this one. The one that got lost, oh, that's yours. Sometimes that's our attitude. We give God what's left over. We take the best for ourselves. 
Give God your best. Lord, this day is yours. Go with me. If you don't go, I don't want to go. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight? Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, Please show me your glory. Now Moses is becoming bolder and bolder in his prayer life. He's seeing that, hey, it works so far. When I ask God for things like this, it, it happens. When I'm bold before his throne, I, he, he gives in. Now God is doing this to draw Moses' faith and prayer out to bring him to this place. Finally, Moses asked for the ultimate. God, I want to see your glory. In Hebrew, the face. I want to see your face, face to face. Now it says that God spoke to Moses face to face, or literally mouth to mouth, as a man would speak to his friend plainly in conversation. But he goes, it's not good enough. I'm not satisfied. I want more. This is awesome. I'm knowing you. You're revealing yourself to me. Show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face. For no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Here's a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now, for a moment, think of all that Moses had been through and all that Moses had seen. Moses could top any of you when it came to supernatural experiences. Now, there might be a one or two tonight who would dare to say, yeah, you know what? God audibly spoke to me. And I'm pretty special. I'm pretty hot. Moses heard the audible voice of God, had a bush talking to him, saw a pillar of cloud, going through the wilderness, a pillar of fire going through the wilderness. He watched a body of water open up so that two and a half million people could go through it. He watched the Egyptians get drowned in it. He saw water come out of a rock. He saw manna fall down from heaven. And he's not satisfied. He wants more. Lord, show me your glory. I want to see your face. No matter how sophisticated you are spiritually, no matter how much you've grown in the Lord, you all, as Christians, have a deep inner desire to see the face of God. And you will not be satisfied until you do. David said, when I awaken your likeness, then I will be satisfied. It was meant to be that way. You are meant on this earth to live in sort of a holy tension. The Lord satisfies you, yes, but it's not complete. You're not completely satisfied until you're in his presence face to face. God designed you that way so that you would yearn to know him more, yearn for closer fellowship, and ultimately yearn for heaven. And the more you walk with the Lord, the things of earth grow strangely dim. I can't wait till Jesus comes back. I can't wait to see him in heaven. That's how you were designed. When you're away from somebody you love, a phone call doesn't cut it. Photographs don't cut it. You long to see the person, but especially the face. If you got off the airplane and the person that was there to meet you had a bag over her or his head and showed you their feet and their hands, you'd be a little bit disappointed, wouldn't you? You'd go, happy to see you, I guess. But I really can't see you. Take the bag off your head. I want to see your face, your eyes, your expression. It's the face, the glory that we want to see. One day you will see the Lord in heaven. You will be satisfied. That is why, and bear this in mind, no matter how great the worship is at a place, no matter how great the songs are, Worship will never satisfy you. It's only meant to whet your appetite for heaven. You might feel enraptured. Wow, that was awesome. I was so close to God tonight. But you're not totally satisfied. 
You don't go through the rest of your life saying, oh, I had that one experience that's good enough for me. No, you want to recreate it or have something better. It's to whet your appetite for heaven. Lord, I've had a lot of experiences, but I want to see your face. I want to see your glory. Moses, God said, I'll reveal myself to you. And he does in chapter 34. I wish we had the time to go through it. A magnificent thing happens. But you can't see my face, Moses, or you'll kick the bucket. You'll die. No man can see my face and live. Tell you what. I hear your request. This is what I'll do for you. I'm going to hide you. Put my hand over you. Protect you. I'm going to pass by. And as I come by, I'll take my hand off, and you'll see the back. And the Hebrew scholars, the rabbis, call this the afterglow. The afterglow. It's presumably God appears in some fiery form of radiation. That's what the, the rab, rabbinical scholars have always believed. Some bright manifestation of God because in the next chapter he comes down from the mountain his face is glowing from this radiation. He said, Moses, you'll burn up if you see me, but as I go by you'll see the afterglow. You'll be in my presence, but you'll only get the afterglow. That's why we get the, we get the term, there's an afterglow in the fellowship hall, we say on certain Thursday nights. You're not going to get the full glory of God, but God will show up. You cannot see my face. No man can see me and live. Now, Moses had his prayer answered when he was in heaven, but I think he really had his prayer answered thousands of years later when Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus appeared in the effulgent glory and brightness of his coming. And he saw the full glory of God's Messiah, transfigured before him, whiter than any fuller on earth could make it. And I'll close with this thought. Listen to the answer that God gives him. You can't see my face, but I'll proclaim my name to you. And he does that in chapter 34, in verse 6 and 7. Thirteen descriptions of God, or the name of God, are given. And, oh, we're out of time already. Wanted to go through the next chapter. He didn't see his face, but he got a revelation. I'm trying to think how I'm going to phrase it. It would be really awesome, we all think. And it probably would be if we had some kind of visible apparition of God. If I could just see some physical sign, if Jesus would just appear to me tonight in my bedroom, that's all I need. That's all I want. I want to see God. That's what Philip said. Lord, just show us the Father and I'll be happy. <laughs> Who wouldn't? But God didn't give Moses what he wanted. In his physical body, he couldn't handle it. But he gave him an audible revelation and description of who he is. God must have thought that's what he needs. That's all that he needs. That's all that he needs. The two people, the two disciples that were traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and Jesus spoke to them. Remember after the whole episode they said, Did not our hearts burn within us as he talked? to us along the way and opened to us the scriptures. They didn't say, wow, didn't our hearts burn as we saw the glory and the vision? No, as we heard him talk. The burning of your heart, the fellowship that you have with God is over the written revelation that God gives you. Oh, but I need a new revelation. No, you don't. You need a new application of the old revelation. That's what you need. That's why God has given you his word. Fellowship with him over the pages of the scripture. I'll proclaim my name. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. My face shall not be seen. God has left his footprint, his fingerprints throughout history. You can look at history, you can observe, and you can read the scriptures. And you can see the, the imprint of God all over it. Besides that, there are stirrings in your own heart. God has revealed himself to you. And even as God spoke to Moses, I believe that God speaks today through this book and also through the Holy Spirit 
that lives within you. The Holy Spirit is able to speak to you personally and share with you the things of God and make application and in a still small voice even. Make the truths of God real. Direct you. Say, here's the way. Walk ye in it. It's exciting to be led by the Spirit. And there are times when I don't feel like, what? Who's that? I don't hear anything audible. But there are other times where I feel the direct, unmistakable prompting of the Spirit of God saying, this is what I want. Do this. It's unmistakable. There are other times I think he's talking, but I'm not sure, so I'll, I'll risk it. I'll be willing to make a mistake and say, Oop, I didn't hear his voice, but at least I tried. I hope, I'm open to it. Be open to the Lord speaking to you. Be open to the prompting and the leading of the Holy Spirit this week. God has some wonderful things to reveal to you in his word and in your heart through his spirit. I know you'd like the Lord to show you his glory. One day you'll see it. And you'll be satisfied when you awaken his likeness. Until then, we walk by faith, not by sight. Where's God leading you? I don't know. But it's sure to be an adventure. You know, it's exciting being a Christian, isn't it? When God is leading you, and you sense God is leading you, and you feel like Abraham, I don't know where he's leading me. But this is awesome to see where he's going to lead me. What's going to happen next? What do you have around the bend? What's, what, where's the corners at? It's exciting. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we, O oh Lord, be able to look back and presently at our own lives and see those milestones of growth, those distinct markers in the way we think and act and also in the way we pray and communicate with you. Lord, help us to go from glory to glory to be conformed into the same image as Jesus Christ, to move from level to level, to know you not just superficially as an acquaintance, but intimately as a friend, to be able to have those leisurely conversations where we just share what's on our heart, and you share your heart with us. May we be so in tune to the Spirit of God in our own lives that we hear that still small voice saying, this is the way, walk in it. Lord, we know that you want to do that. You long to do that in our lives. And we're really anxious to see what you will bring to us this week and in the weeks ahead. Lord, Moses prayed that he would know you. And that's what you want from every individual. We know that. You want to have a personal relationship. It's very evident from these chapters. You're not content with a relationship of distance or of ritual or of simply ceremony, of route and routine. But Lord, you desire an intimate form of relationship. And I pray tonight that if some have come into this assembly, have known about you, have heard about you, have gone to church all their lives, but it's just been a religious thing, they can't say they know you intimately. I pray, Lord, that even as you provided a way of atonement and fellowship outside the camp, we know that Jesus Christ was crucified outside the camp. And we can come to him and find atonement. And I pray that those would come. Before we close the service off completely, maybe you have come tonight. You've been told about Calvary Chapel. A friend invited you or perhaps coerced you. But whatever reason, you're here. And you are sensing in your heart the promptings of God drawing you to himself, wanting to have a relationship with you. The sensation that you feel right now, the uneasiness, is no doubt the conviction of the Holy Spirit moving in your life, drawing you to him. Well, it's time to respond. It's time to receive Jesus Christ tonight as your Lord. John said, as many as receive him... To them he will give the authority, the power to become his children. But you must receive him. You must admit that you are a sinner, that you need him. And like the children of Israel who stripped themselves of their ornaments, say, Lord, I come humbly and I ask you to forgive me and make me your child. 
That's coming to him by faith. If you would like to receive Jesus Christ tonight and come into a relationship with him as Savior and as Lord, then acknowledge that right now by raising your hand up. And as you do, I'll acknowledge your hand and I'll pray for you before we close this service. Just raise your hand up high. Say, Skip, pray for me. I want to give my life to Jesus tonight. God bless you. Lift it up boldly. Anybody else? Just lift your hand up and say, Skip, pray for me. God bless you, ma'am, down here to my left. Is God speaking to anybody else? Raise your hand up high so that I can see it. Anyone else? God bless you too in the back or in the middle and you, ma'am, right here. Praise the Lord. Anybody else? If God's speaking, then surrender to him. Be like the man who's drowning and say, here's my hand. Help me. I don't want to be swallowed up by this world any longer. I want God's help. Anybody else? Then, Father, we thank you for these, and we lift them up. God bless you. And we pray, Lord, that as Jesus becomes the one invited into their heart, that he would take charge, completely change, and give these the knowledge of the forgiveness of their sins and the hope of everlasting life. 